morning. Our New Testament reading this morning is going to be from the book of John, uh, chapter 7, and we're going to be reading verses 24, uh, excuse me, 14 through 24. And if you remember from last week, uh, Jesus' brothers were trying to get him to leave Galilee and go with them down to the Feast of Booths in Judea. But Jesus told him, no, it's, I'm not going to go right now. But then he ended up going privately, so that's where we're at. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, and he began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? None of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. <clears throat> Moses gave you circumcision, not that is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And then our uh, sermon text is going to be from Second uh, Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be reading verses 10 through 13 of Second Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they are burned. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> Amen. Thank you, Mark. Okay, we're in the home stretch of Second Peter. Uh, Lord willing, we'll finish up next week, and uh, then we'll dive into something, something, hopefully that will be encouraging to you for the summer. And you know how my summer series goes; they usually go to Thanksgiving. That's usually the way it works. So, anyway, uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your precious word. Uh, help us to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Sanctify us by your truth, Father. Your word is truth. So as we ponder your word today, as we read it, study it, hear it preached right now, make us a little bit more like Jesus. 
Wash us in the precious water of your word. For those that are here, Father, that are not born again, I pray you would wash them in the precious blood of Jesus. As they hear your word, may it open their hearts. May you open their hearts to receive the message. So please do that, Father. Save the lost. Sanctify the saved. Now, right now, for your glory, the good of your church. We love you, Father. We thank you for loving us first. We pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our corporate heart together today would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All righty. So Peter wraps up his last letter here by focusing on the final and ultimate day of the Lord, the glorious return of Jesus, and what we should be doing in the meantime. We'll emphasize that more next week in the final message. Last week, just to catch us up here, we saw three things from verses 8 to 10, okay? We saw that the Lord is timeless. Verse 8 talks about one day to the Lord as as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So we should not overlook this or forget this. Time doesn't affect God the way it affects us. We age and change over time. God doesn't. We tend to grow impatient over time. God doesn't because God doesn't sin. God never changes. So God's relation to time is much different than ours. As we said last week, he lives in the eternal present. We don't. We are affected by our past. We have bad memories. We have good memories. We learn from our mistakes. We, we are encouraged by the precious memories that we have. doesn't affect God in that way. From a, from a positive perspective, as we said, we learn from our past. God doesn't need to learn. He's omniscient. He knows everything. We often worry and are concerned about our future. God doesn't and isn't. So time doesn't affect God at all. But it does us as finite, limited, dying people. We must remember not to confine an infinite, unlimited, sovereign, eternal God to any type of schedule. He's not confined to our personal day planner, and any attempt to do that is foolish. God does not and will never submit to our timetable. A clear understanding of that will do wonders for our growth in the spiritual fruit of patience. So what Peter is telling his readers in verse 8, and what he's telling us, is that Jesus will return at the exact moment of God's sovereign choosing. A moment that has already been determined by timeless God in eternity past. Hang on to that thought because we're going to touch again on it toward the end of this message with a little bit different biblical spin. So, um, the second thing we talked about last week, from verse 9, the classic uh, verse that we spent a lot of time on that we want today, so if you weren't here, I encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, on the website or watch it on YouTube. Um, the, the verse that just blows 
a lot of people away when he says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should, should reach repentance. In this verse, Peter is telling us that God's slowness is not the issue. Remember the context of the whole passage. Scoffers were mocking believers for thinking that Jesus was going to return. They were basically saying, look how long it's been. It hadn't happened. Probably never going to happen. Wake up. Get with it. So what Peter is telling us is that the, the delay is not the issue. The pa- God's patience is the issue, which we should be thankful for. Peter is saying that God's delay in judgment shows his mercy, and we should be very thankful for this. We should value this because we have friends and family members and loved ones that we are still begging God to save. So God's patience in sending Jesus continues to give us hope for these dear people that we love so much. We then took some time to unpack verse 9 and what Peter is saying because our point was the Lord is patient. This should not be undervalued. Okay, We should be thankful for that patience, but it, at the same time, it should not be misunderstood. Okay, And so, again... I, we, Time won't allow us to go into that in detail again, but the bottom line was this. The you, in verse 9, is not every individual in the whole world. The letter was not written or addressed to every individual in the whole world. The letter was written and addressed to those of like faith. If you go back to verse 1, the opening of the letter, written to those of like faith, and then in the immediate context... Verse 8, it's written to the beloved, people that belong to God. So the you is the beloved or the elect, the chosen of God, those chosen from the foundation of the world, they are the recipients of the letter. So the main point, just to sum it up, and I know it's just hitting it brief, go back if you weren't here, listen to that message from last week. But the main point of Peter's argument, I believe, is this, Jesus will not come back until the final member of his church, his elect, his chosen, has repented. Because God does not wish for any of his chosen ones to perish. The scoffers are totally wrong. God has not delayed his promise in the way that they have in mind. On the contrary, God is not delaying, but patiently and lovingly waiting for all his chosen people to repent and confess Jesus as Lord. He wants none of them to perish, and not a single one of them will perish. Not a single one of them will go to hell. This is glorious good news for the believer. If you're here today and and not a believer, that's, that's scary news for you, okay? That's scary news for you. So our prayer for you is that God's word will have its desired effect on your heart and your repentance will show that you are one of that group as well, that God is being patient toward. And where we left off last week was with the third point. We just introduced it from verse 10. The Lord is coming. We should not be unprepared 
nor unwatchful. And that's where we'll pick up today. Verse 10, let's read it again. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So let's, let's ponder together this coming day of the Lord. This is a fairly common theme in Scripture, this phrase, the day of the Lord. To state it simply, the phrase is a general title for any time of judgment. Okay? Chuck Swindle says, quote, the phrase, the day of the Lord, refers to any period of time when God sends judgment on the wicked. This means there have been many historical days of the Lord, like the flood of Noah or the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, end quote. So what, but what Peter's talking about here is the ultimate day of the Lord, the granddaddy of all the days of the Lord, okay? The day when Jesus returns and sin and corruption and evil will be no more. The prophet Isaiah gives us a concise description in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9, when he writes, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. John MacArthur writes, quote, The Old Testament prophets viewed the final day of the Lord as a day of unparalleled judgment, darkness, and damnation, a day in which the Lord would completely destroy His enemies, vindicate His name, reveal His glory, and establish His kingdom. Now, let's pause right here and take a little side trip. When we consider this phrase uh, in the MacArthur quote, establish His kingdom. As we ponder that, we must keep in mind the biblical concept of the already and not yet. The already and not yet. We've talked about this phrase before. We haven't mentioned it in a long time. So this is a good time to review that. This phrase describes the time in which we now live. Why do I say that? Well... We are already a part of God's kingdom through the gift of salvation. Christ is already ruling and reigning over all things because he is ascended and sits at the right hand of God. More on that on the last Sunday of this month, Ascension Sunday, okay? But the kingdom is not yet fully consummated. How do we know that? Well, because sin still exists. The devil still prowls around seeking to harass and intimidate. Evil still runs rampant in the fallen satanic world system. Examples are easy to point out. The, some people's total, one example, some people's total and absolute commitment to abortion on demand. Some people's animosity shown toward the nuclear family. 
through various anti-God and anti-family movements. The examples abound. The kingdom has not yet been fully consummated. So that's what we're talking about. When, when, when Dr. MacArthur says of the day of the Lord, Jesus coming to establish his kingdom, a, a better word might be, not that I'm, not that I'm uh, you know, can think of better words than John MacArthur, but consummate his kingdom might be better because his kingdom has not been fully consummated yet. That happens on this great day that Peter is talking about, the coming day of the Lord, the destruction of all evil, the end of all sin, okay? The, the glorification of our bodies. When we see him, we will be as he is. We will never have to fight sin again. What a day. What a day of rejoicing that will be. So verse 10 is basically an elaboration of verse 7. If you remember verse 7 uh, at the, toward the uh, beginning of the chapter where Peter wrote, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Okay, so Peter's already touched on this, and then verse 10, four verses later, he just elaborates on it, okay, and gives us a little bit more detail when he tells us the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, just consider the ring, the, 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 the clarion ring of certainty that we see in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Not maybe, not the day of the Lord might come or we're hoping it will come. No, it will come. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. These are certain future happenings. So let's ponder these certainties together. And I've condensed them down under two headings, two headings instead of four. Number one, the day of the Lord will be sudden and unannounced. It will be sudden and unannounced. Why do we say that? Because of the analogy of it coming like a thief, like a thief. It's like the coming of a thief to your home. I've never been robbed, so I can't, you know, through experience uh, testify to this. But I'm guessing that those of you that may have been robbed or may have been burglarized, the thief never sent you a, you know, RSVP telling you he was coming. Or, you know, uh, announcing, okay, uh, two days from from today uh, at 9.30 p.m. I'm going to break into your home. No, thieves come unannounced. And they come suddenly. Paul used the same analogy. We see Peter and Paul once again walking in lockstep. I wonder why, but maybe it's because the Holy Spirit inspired their writings. Paul used the same analogy in his first letter to the church at Thessalonica. We read this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There's the same phraseology. 
He goes on, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction, suddenly, suddenly, unannounced, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Let's think about this for a minute. The unregenerate mind, um, the self-sovereign human mind, hates this idea. In our natural state, we absolutely hate this idea of judgment. The unregenerate mind hates the reality that every person will ultimately stand before God and give an account. J.I. Packer nails the, this mindset of the spirit of the age with these words, quote, Do you believe in divine judgment? By which I mean, do you believe in a God who acts as our judge? Many, it seems, do not. Speak to them of God as Father, a friend, a helper, one who loves us despite all our weaknesses and folly and sin, and their faces light up. You are on their wavelength at once. But speak to them of God as judge, and they frown and shake their heads. Their minds recoil from such an idea. They find it repellent and unworthy. Well, I believe Packers nailed it there. But no matter what an unbeliever thinks about it, guess what? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And it will be sudden and unannounced, like a thief in the night. Secondly, the second heading I want to talk about this under First was the day of the Lord will be sudden and unannounced. Secondly, the day of the Lord will be catastrophic and revealing. It will be catastrophic and revealing. Note the drastic apocalyptic terms Peter uses. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. I'm not even going to try to describe that. You just ponder that and think about that. But we're talking major catastrophe here, unlike anything seen before. Jesus himself alluded to this in Matthew 25, 24, 35, when he said, heaven and earth will pass away. Will, note the will, the certainty, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. I love that he adds that. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. I think we've got a word-for-word word song on that. I think our kids sing that, so and they sing it well. Matthew 24, 35. And then Peter writes this. The earth and the works done on it will be exposed. The ESV that, that I preach from says will be exposed. Now, this is a tricky phrase because there are textual variants among the manuscripts that exist, okay? Uh, later manuscripts have a word that means will be burned up. That's what you'll see in, I think, the New American Standard Version. Alternate translations of 
exposed, we've got, it will be disclosed, it will be discovered, it will be laid bare. Now, I'm going to go with what the ESV translators have for two reasons. Number one, the earliest manuscripts have the Greek word for found or discovered. So, the translation of the ESV translators exposed, they will be exposed matches that. And secondly, because of other related texts with the Bible. Because, see, when we have difficulties like this, what do we do? What, what should we do? We let the Bible interpret the Bible, right? Okay, so Hebrews 4.13, we read this. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There you have that concept of being totally exposed before God. No more sham, no more phoniness. There you are, you and God. That day is coming for every single person. We will stand and give an account to God. Romans 14, 12 tells us that. Every person will stand and give an account, and we will be exposed. Okay. I'm encouraging you, when that day comes for you, that you make sure before you leave today that you will be standing clothed in the righteousness of Christ because that is our only hope. If you're planning on making it on your own righteousness, what does the Bible tell us about that? Our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's not going to cut it. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you better have that covering. The covering of the righteousness of Christ. The covering that was foreshadowed in the very beginning pages of the Bible. When God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. Before he did that, what did he do? He killed an animal and covered them with the skins of that animal. A picture of the ultimate slain lamb, Jesus, who covers us in his righteousness. So be ready for this day. And the only way we can be ready is by repenting of our sin and confessing Jesus as Lord. Another verse that points to the word exposed being a proper interpretation is Matthew 7. Uh, I think uh, John MacArthur calls this the, the, the most frightening text in the Bible. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, on that day, what day is he talking about? The day where Peter's talking about here, the day of the Lord. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. They even use the right terminology. Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Their phoniness is exposed. Their phony works are exposed. Jesus knows their heart. Everyone's works. Everyone's works. That's what Peter's saying. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Everyone's works will be exposed to God's judgment. So what I believe Peter's telling us is, when this, is that when this awesome day comes, everything in the universe except the earth and men's works will be destroyed. Everything will be removed so that humanity will stand upon the earth naked before God, before their Creator, stripped bare of any phony pretensions, impure motives, false works, totally bare. And when I think of that, I think of Romans 3.19. That pops immediately into my mind. Where Paul wrote, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. It's going to be a scary day for a lot of people. But this is the day of salvation. After you die in this life, it's done. It's over. Your future is set. Your eternal future is set. Today's the day of salvation. If, if you do not know Jesus, today is the day. So I think not only had Peter heard Jesus' words, like in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, or Matthew 7, you know, a lot of people are going to try to fake it, but it's gonna, they're, they're going to be exposed. It's going to be exposed that I never knew them, and they never really knew me, and they're going to have to depart from me. So I, I think Peter not only heard those words, I think he was probably also familiar with Isaiah 51. Listen to what the prophet says in verses 4 to 6. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Amen. So 
Where will you be at the end day? Will you be firmly planted in God's salvation that will be forever? Or will you be in the group that will die in like manner when the heavens vanish like smoke and the earth wears out like a garment? All right, well, let's, let's turn our gaze now to we've seen the, the coming day of the Lord. And I know that's a very, we just skimmed the surface of that. My, my brother-in-law, Amy's brother, if you're interested in this, wrote his doctoral thesis on the, the, day, the phrase, the day of the Lord. And it's a thing about this thick. So if you really want to read about this, uh, go to Dr. David Lanier's website and pull up his doctoral <laughs> dissertation and read about it, okay? Uh, so I hope he's not watching right now because uh, uh, he's probably got a lot of corrections for me. But anyway, uh, let's talk about the expectant people of the Lord. Let's close our time with uh, with with focusing on two things. Number one, the essential feature of our lives. What should be the essential feature of our lives? Peter alludes to this in verse 11 when he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you, be, ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Okay, verse 11, when you read that, it, it sounds like a question, but if you notice, in the ESV at least, and I think most of the translations, there's no question mark at the end. So, even though it starts off with the word what and sounds like a question, And every time you read that, you can't keep your voice from kind of making that question intonation, right? But it's not a question. It's not a question. A few translators turned it into a question, but in the Greek, it's not a question. It is a declaration. It's like saying, uh, what a day this is. Like like yesterday with our grad, what a day that was. I'm not asking a question, I'm making a declaration. So Peter's saying, if all this is going to happen, and it is, what kind of people are we called to be? Let's, let's think about that, okay? The Greek verb is expressing an obligation, okay? It's got the, 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 the word all, what, 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 our, what our alts should be, okay? How we should live, how we ought to live in holiness and godliness. I like the Holman Christian Standard Translation. They word it like this, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. In other words, the essential aspect of our lives should be Christ-likeness. We wait patiently and expectantly For Jesus, and while we are waiting, we live lives that reflect Him. So, to put it succinctly, I got a neat little phrase for you today, okay? As born-again people, we expect Jesus, and we reflect Jesus. Got it? Okay? Now, if you're sleeping right now, you're not reflecting Jesus, okay? 
Jesus loved God's Word, okay? So I'll just throw that out there for you to think about, all right? So we expect Jesus and we reflect Jesus. Pretty good summary statement of the Christian life. Expect and reflect. We patiently expect our King's return. And we joyfully reflect our King's character. As we've said before, this waiting for Jesus isn't waiting and twiddling our thumbs. It's not waiting and doing nothing, like when you're in a waiting room in a doctor's office or something, okay? We're, we're waiting for Jesus, but we're also at the same time pressing on and persevering for his glory in many godly ways, like serving others, loving our family, loving our church family, raising the next generation, engaging in the spiritual warfare, embracing suffering without complaining, standing against godlessness, basically glorifying God in all aspects of life. And guess what? We can do this. We can do this. You can do this. Okay? This is not a call for some elite, you know, Green Beret type of Christian. We can all do this. How do we know that? How do we know that? Well, look back at the beginning of the letter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us, watch this, all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us the equipment to do it. He's given us all things to do it. Basically, the Holy Spirit. He's given us his life. We can do this through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And, and, and note what verse 12, the beginning of verse 12 says. This is interesting. Um, we're we're going to set up the camper here for a minute, okay? We're going to set the camper up and camp on this for a minute. Waiting for, there's our waiting, okay? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. Wait, what? 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 Hastening? We can hasten the return of Jesus? Really? I mean, how does that work? Because we said last week, and even in the review, that's why I reviewed it, we said that this day is set in the sovereign plan of God. This is a challenge for my peanut brain. I'm not totally sure what Peter is saying here or how this works. But as we wrestle with this, let's recount the things that we do know for sure, okay? And remember, I believe it's going to be linked to, remember, what is time's effect on God? Zilch. Nada. Keep that in mind, okay? A day with the Lord 
is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Time is nothing to God. Okay, so let's try to see what Peter is saying here when he says we're waiting for and hastening the day of God. How, how does this work? Okay, what are the things we know for sure from our study of the Bible? Okay, I'm just going to throw out some things. Number one, God is sovereign over all things. He is timeless, and he rules over time. According to Jesus himself, when he was on this planet, okay, when he had taken on a body like ours, he said that God the Father is the only one who knows the exact time for the return of Jesus. It is, it is fixed. This time, this day is fixed in the overall eternal plan of redemption. Okay, secondly, second thing we know for sure. God uses means to accomplish His will. We call it secondary causes. Okay? Like, if someone were to get saved today during our time together here, God is the primary cause of their salvation. God opened their heart. The Holy Spirit had to do that. Had to open their eyes to the truth. Had to take out the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Only God can do that. But the secondary means was the preaching of the Word of God. Okay? With me? So, God uses means to accomplish His will. Faith comes by hearing. How will they hear without a preacher? Okay? In other words, God, while He could, He doesn't zap His people into salvation. Okay? He uses His people. He uses preachers. He uses missionaries. He uses Sunday school teachers. He uses Christian friends and Christian co-workers, etc., etc. In other words, he uses his church to further his kingdom and to establish his kingdom and to bring people into the kingdom. Okay? With me so far? Okay, thirdly, we said last week, based on 2 Peter 3, 9, that the issue with Jesus' return is not God's slowness, but God's patience. God is patient with His people. He wills that none of them will perish. And Jesus will not return until the last individual of God's elect repents and confesses Him as Lord. In other words, let's try to maybe get to a, a concluding point here. In other words, Jesus will return when the last of God's chosen people believes. How do they believe? By hearing the gospel. How do they hear the gospel? By the people of God speaking it to them, either by formal preaching or teaching, or speaking person to person one-on-one. -on -one. These are the secondary causes. 
What does God often use to get unbelievers' attention so that they will listen to the gospel? That He uses the godly lives of his people. And that connects us back to what Peter is saying. What manner of life ought you to live in holiness and godliness when you think of the coming day of the Lord? Are you with me? Okay. So as God's people live holy and godly lives... The unsaved elect are pointed to Christ. And as the church carries out the Great Commission to go and make disciples, God opens the hearts of his elect to believe when they hear the gospel. So, so do you sense or see the kind of the, the joint effort here of God using his people? to bring people into his kingdom until that last one is brought in. So the conclusion my peanut brain draws is this. From the human standpoint, the human standpoint, not God's standpoint because time has no effect on God, right? It's like Jesus is going to return in the eternal present, in God's mind. Ah, oh, my brain's hurting. Okay, stick. With, uh, hang with me. The conclusion I draw is from the human standpoint, from the standpoint of secondary causes, you know, people preaching the gospel, teaching their children, raising their children in the instruction of the Lord. We hasten the day of the Lord when we obey God by living for His glory and proclaiming the gospel. You say, Butch, how does that work? I'm not totally sure. And I'm thankful that I don't have to understand it fully to get into heaven. All I know is this. The day of Jesus' return is set. I'm to live a holy and godly life. And those two truths stand side by side. Here's a comment from Simon Kistemacher for us to ponder. He says this. This is a startling statement indeed. Yes, it certainly is. Hastening the coming day of the Lord. Peter is saying that we have a vital part in shortening the time set for the coming of God's day. And I would add here. From the human perspective. From the human perspective. Because remember, time is nothing to God. He goes on. This saying corresponds with the ancient prayer the church has prayed since the first century. Maranatha, meaning come, O Lord. Furthermore, it harmonizes with the petition, your kingdom come. How did Jesus teach us to pray? For the coming of the kingdom. Lord, your kingdom come. In his discourse on the last day, Jesus instructs his followers to proclaim the gospel to the all nations. And then the end will come. That seems to say the more 
hastily and the more efficiently we preach the gospel to the nations, the sooner the end will come. From the human perspective. Not from God's perspective, because every event is in what? The eternal now. Eternal now. Here's a helpful note from the ESV Study Bible. Hastening the coming day of God suggests that by living holy lives, Christians can actually affect the time of the Lord's return. That does not mean, of course, that the Lord has not foreknown and foreordained when Jesus will return. But when God set that day, and here's a key point, he also ordained that it would happen after all of his purposes for saving believers and building his kingdom in this present age had been accomplished. And those purposes are accomplished when he works through his human agents to bring them about. In other words, God has not only ordained the end, he has ordained the means to that end. And from the human perspective, the better we answer our calling, the quicker Jesus will come. But that has no effect on God. Uh, does that make any sense? <laughs> Who has been God's counselor? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are are higher than ours. If I can fully understand God, I ain't worshiping the God of the Bible, okay? So here's what I want you to take from this. No mathematical formulas as to when Jesus is coming. Just know that he is and live for his glory. That's what I want you to get out of it. And if Peter says that hastens the day, then so be it. So be it. Even so, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha, So, as we expect and reflect Jesus, David Ham gives us this summary exhortation in his commentary. Therefore, let us wait productively, like we've already said, not twiddling our thumbs. Wait productively, doing godly things, living for the glory of God. Putting others first. Considering others more significant than yourself. Outdoing one another in showing honor. Laying down our lives for each other. Raising our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let us wait productively. Be holy and godly. Be persistently pure and at peace. Hate sin. For by these things you hasten the coming of the Lord. May the Lord give us insight. May the Lord give us encouragement as we ponder this amazing statement. Finally, the exclusive basis for our trust. Okay? Very simple. God said it. God's promise. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. God said Jesus would come back. And we believe him. Jesus himself said he would come back. John 14, 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. 
and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He said that, and we believe him. Jesus said he was coming back. God, through the writing of his prophets and apostles, said Jesus was coming back. The word of the Lord is good enough for us. He cannot lie. He is trustworthy. And so we are 1,000% confident of our Lord's return. So let's wrap it up. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? If so, you need not fear this future catastrophic event. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus. And you belong to him. And he will keep you safe. You'll be able to stand in the judgment. Because you are standing on the solid rock of who he is. And you are clothed in his perfect, holy righteousness. Amen. If you're not a Christian, I urge you with everything in me to take care of that today. Today's the day of salvation. Can't talk about the end times without quoting the Prince of Preachers. Let me leave you with this from Charles Spurgeon. This world, so far as we know, will not cease to be. Now, that's an important, I didn't delve into that, but most of the theologians and commentators that I read were, were pretty at, at one on this. When, when we read phrases like, the earth will pass away, heavens will pass away, we're not talking about total destruction because, you know, follow the science, right? Matter cannot be destroyed. When something's burned up, it just changes into another element, right? Okay, you scientists, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. If, if, see Tom Carpenter if you don't know what I'm talking about here, okay? So, uh, anyway, um, so this thought of pa- passing away, pass away into some other form. So here's what Spurgeon said. This is a pondering quote, okay? And even in the quote, he's going to say, I'm not being dogmatic here. Something for us to think about. He said, so far as we know, the world will not cease to be. It will pass through the purifying flame. That's what fire does, right? Fire purifies. All the dross is burned away. All the sin will be burned away. All, we, we talked about it earlier. We'll, everything will be naked and bare before God. Every, okay? And then, perhaps, oh, I love this. Only the prince of preachers could talk like this. And then, perhaps... The soft and gentle breath of almighty love will blow upon it and cool it rapidly. The divine hand will shape it as it cools into a paradise more fair than what bloomed upon the banks of the Tigris. We believe from various things that are hinted at in Scripture, though not dogmatically, that this world will be refitted and renovated in that sense We expect new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Will you be there? Oh, I really, really hope so. You young people, gosh, I really hope you will be there. As always, today is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this great and glorious
and fearful, awesome coming day. Please, Father, make every member and everyone connected to my church family be ready for that day. By repenting of their sin, confessing Jesus as their only one and only Lord. Please, Father, save the lost today. And while you're doing that, sanctify the saved with the truth of your word. We thank you now for this time at the table of grace where we remember what Jesus has done for us to make us ready for his glorious return. Bless this time now, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.